0: You're listening to SaaS Acquisition Stories, a podcast featuring the stories from both startup founders and buyers who have successfully gone through an acquisition process using MicroAcquire, the number one startup acquisition marketplace in the world. To date, MicroAcquire has helped hundreds of startups get acquired and has facilitated hundreds of millions in closed-deal volume. Here's your host, Andrew Gazdecki.
1: All right, I'm with Mark Davis, the man, the myth, the legend. From Interplay and uh, Mark, I'm super excited about this uh, this podcast. So thanks for joining me.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's awesome. Check so out
1: this. I see the coffee cup, the the microfiber mug.
0: I'm representing.
1: <laughs> are our LOIs flying everywhere as you said it or what? Of course. <laughs> um. So Interplay. For those that aren't familiar with Interplay, do you want to give maybe a, a two second background on um? what it is. I said two seconds, so try <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to are
0: short. Uh, uh, we're a startup one,
1: ecosystem. two. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm just
0: messing with Yeah. <laughs> it's never going to work. Um, uh, the way we talk about it is we, we say we're a startup ecosystem. Uh, we've got five different divisions that all kind of feed each other and uh, help entrepreneurs. The whole thing is really centered around a belief, and I think this is one, Andrew, that you share. Um, we believe entrepreneurs are the people who drive society forward, more, in many cases, more, more so in many cases than nonprofits and government organizations. And so we are trying to build an institutional-grade platform that will be here 100 years after I'm dead, helping entrepreneurs. And so we've got five different divisions of it. The, the cornerstone of it is an early stage venture capital fund uh, where we invest to kind of seed to be uh, North American technology companies. We also do some LATAM. Uh, we are about to launch a blockchain fund, so that's coming. Uh, we have a services platform, so uh, seven companies we've co-founded that provide core operating services to entrepreneurs. These are things like commercial and health insurance, marketing, leadership training, accounting, tax, CFO, law, business process outsourcing. That's a 550-person team now, and we provide services to about 15% of all venture-backed companies in America. Oh,
1: wow! We've
0: got an. Incubator, where we coach pre-seed and post-seed companies and operations, about 15 companies a year that we work with. Um, And the goal is really just to help entrepreneurs nail the business development, like how they're setting up, getting the company on the rails. And it's a very hands-on program. It's like private tutoring. We have a foundry where the mandate there is the partner who oversees that is trying to launch five to 10 venture-backed companies a year. And then we have a multi-family office which is a little bit less obvious how it fits into the mission than some of the others but i'll run down that if you're open to it we've got um it's a standard family office in the sense that it's trying to do estate tax asset management for people who have made money partners and other traditionally um venture-backed ceos who have had liquidity not all of them are venture-backed but a lot of entrepreneurial types are members of the family office but there's a really important mission in what the family office does that kind of jives with this whole thing. Uh, there was, uh, remember, in college, I feel like there was three things that stuck, right? Three things I carried with me for the last twenty something years that I remember, and one of them was I took this writing course, um, and the writing course itself wasn't interesting, but we happened to be reading Andrew Carnegie. And one of the things Carnegie said, paraphrased, is more or less that capitalism is really good at allocating resources to capable hands, my hands, your hands, but really falls apart when you and I retire because we put our money in bonds and the S&P and we're essentially handing the money to bureaucrats. We're not reallocating it to the next generation of innovators. So the social mandate of the family office is a great one. It's keeping Innovators' money back in the hands of the next generation through venture capital firms, through space technology investments, through life sciences and genetics, and all of those things kind of fit together um, uh, to provide like what we think is a great product for families that need need that management. Because it's not just making money; I believe that's actually where you make most of the money. People creating value, add value, but um, it's also a great way to kind of have like a social impact and believe your money's at work working for society when it's while you're sleeping. So that's yes. that's what we do at Interplay.
1: So you got a lot going on. Um what's your favorite part of the the whole ecosystem, I guess. That's kind of like Rainy. asking what your favorite kid is, but like um it totally is. what what but, part gets you most fired up these days? But
0: it's the answer is it's like a it's a it's a layer of it. It's not one business line or the I love everything we're doing. I'm really passionate about because I feel like it all moves the needle and matters and you know, um, we're 10 years in an interplay and I don't plan on retiring. So we got a long, you know, God willing, we have a long way ahead to keep building this and having impact. But the, um, the thing that gets me most fired up is brainstorming. And what's great about this particular job for me is when I'm hearing company pitches, when I'm getting phone calls from founders or I'm ideating on a new business to start, all of those things are moments where you're kind of on that whiteboard being creative. And I think in a normal job as an executive in a company, you really have that breakthrough moment once a month, maybe, maybe twice a month. But the beauty for me as a person who's obsessed with that experience is that by virtue of being part of this bigger platform, I get pulled into that moment of ideation a couple times a day. And so I get to have higher frequency of living in those moments. Um, that uh, it gave me goosebumps give me all fired up about like something cool we're doing or way we're gonna make someone's job better or whatever it is but that that creative outlet's awesome
1: you get that feeling of like finding product market fit like every day
0: yeah we don't always figure it out but it's a (laughs) it's to me that's the most exciting adventure in entrepreneurship it's the it's the brainstorming part
1: well mark i i love your mission i love everything you're doing But what strikes me and what I've always admired about you is just how authentic you are in your mission. Because, you know, there's a lot of firms that kind of say, you know, kind of the fluffy words, founder first, you know, this and that. And um, it's all in, um, you know, good faith, uh, what have you. Um, but you're so authentic about it. So like, how did you get into entrepreneurship? How did you stumble into this? What what created this um, passion within you?
0: I think it's not something I really chose. I don't even think it happened. Best guess I have is it's actually like some sort of DNA type thing. You probably share it. Um, My story is I'm a middle-class kid from, you know, West Covina, Los Angeles, outskirts of nowhere. And I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. I didn't come, there's no, a lot of, not a lot of other entrepreneurs, in my family, I didn't, wasn't taught but I was selling baseball cards in elementary, Canyon Junior High, computers, graduating seniors in high school. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this who have a similar story. Uh, I tried to start five companies in college, no idea what I was doing. I did my undergrad at Duke and the school has become very entrepreneurial since then, but at the time, I was one of two entrepreneurs on campus and I badly needed mentorship and didn't get it. Uh, came out, knew I needed to you know, learn real business skills Uh, did a lab through consulting at Bain, and then uh, doing diligence and M&A transactions at KPMG. Did my MBA at Columbia, and then about 16 years ago, was fortunate enough to land in a venture capital job. Um, Had some really great mentors. uh, Learned and taught a lot about the business, and then 10 years, uh, thought it was time to go out on my own and uh, set up Interplay.
1: Nice. That childhood story is shockingly similar to mine. I I think I told you this, but I used to start a company every year in college, every summer, kind of knowing it would fail. But it was just I got free time and I wanted to learn. And I was addicted to entrepreneurship from a very young age. Um, so it's interesting to see how those those traits can kind of add up. Um, what was your
0: your favorite one you did? What was the
1: the one that worked? Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, uh I can tell you the four. Um One was like a uh, website design company for local, uh, apartment companies, like, Hey, rent my apartment for your students or whatever, just so I could learn web design. So I learned web design. The second one was a, uh, more of like a marketplace type. And this was actually with a friend. Um, his name's Chris Rudy Grapp, um, CEO of Sendoza now um that one didn't work out either did it the first one and the second one was a job board that connected mobile developers businesses and the sec the, the fourth one was um a drag and drop mobile app builder and the funny part about all those is uh same thing with chico state the entrepreneurship program was in that developed and i would apply to the business plan competition every single year and i'm proud to say i've won fourth third second and first (laughs) like wow and then every time i would get like second place i'd have like a paragraph on like what like here's why i should have i was like that annoying entrepreneur kid (laughs) like how did like literally i remember losing to a girl whose idea was to put chips in babies so you track them or something like that and i was like the the capital requirements for this are so high like the tech is this even legal (laughs) and uh i was lucky enough um i had a teacher his name was peter Strauss. So he kind of pulled me aside and recognized like maybe let's give this kid a little bit more attention or he's gonna just keep emailing us right um so that's awesome so um that's fast great, man. i love this uh, fast forward where you are today um you know uh there's a lot going on with um startups and just you know the environment changing how are you kind of absorbing that? How, what is your kind of perspective? You know, it's um, July 13th. I believe we're this is the third biggest drop on the NASDAQ. Um, you know, probably not your first rodeo in terms of a downturn. But how do you, like, you? I'm sure you've done this, but what advice are you giving entrepreneurs right now in terms of, like, how to view a downturn, how to think through a downturn?
0: Yeah, um, so this is my third downturn second one in a venture seat. Um, I think the first thing I'm telling people uh, is that this is normal. I think the extent to which people are feeling a sense of panic or a hopelessness uh, that comes with this, I think that's not the right lens to look at it. Uh, the market's like a wave and sometimes, you know, it's up and down and you got to surf all different angles. And so this is the downturn part of the wave. Now, within the downturn market there, the scenarios, there's kind of two types. I liken it to a car. Uh, there's a type where you are intentionally shifting down gear. The people who are puppeteering the market, the Fed, are intentionally slowing the economy. And there's a different type of downturn. It's when the, it's when the engine breaks, a piston pops and smoke's coming out of the hood. And that's the downturn we had in 08. And that was a cataclysmic downturn. That was a downturn where we were not sure if the system still worked. There was questions about trust in the equity markets and the debt markets, trust of capital flows. No one really knew what was happening. This is much more of a downturn that was frankly predictable. And it's a controlled, from my perspective on it, it's a controlled um, scenario where the Fed is intentionally shrinking market. By increasing interest rates, I can go through the whole. My macroeconomics professor would be ha- happy. I could take <laughs> you through kind of the whole thread. I, I think this this story really started, frankly, um, when we had a, a long, long bull market uh, that eventually, you know, landed in a pandemic with stimulus uh, that triggered inflation and inevitably triggered the interest rate regime to change, which I think was probably going to happen anyway. And when that goes, when that happens, it changes the economic flow of the whole community. So what we're going through now, I think is first up, foremost normal and navigable. Now, the tough reality of it is what happens in these dynamics is that um, the capital supply changes VC. So for public companies, we all know their stock prices are down in the tech sector. That means they can't raise money as fast. They also know that the market's going to slow and it's going to be lower revenue. Um, so their projections that they had done in internal business planning no longer apply. And that's gonna result in a bunch of layoffs. They can't get outside capital and they going to grow as fast. So those two, those two dynamics mean, hey, that plan we had, we're gonna hire a thousand people, no longer relevant, let's cut a thousand people. So that will have a market impact, but there is a similar but different parallel impact happening in the private market. And it's driven by what we call the denominator effect. The way the capital markets work for VCs is that they raise money Generally, from large institutions as they get kind of more and more mature as a venture fund. Those institutions are pension funds, university endowments, insurance companies. And the people who manage those pools of capital, which are billions and billions of dollars typically, uh, the way they do that is they've got a target allocation percentage. They might say, we want to be 20% venture. And what happens in a down market when valuations come down in the publics is as public equities decline the value of the whole portfolio for that manager shrink. So they might've had 10 billion two months ago, which is now eight. Now here's the problem. If they had done 20% of their capital already allocated in venture, let's say it's 2 billion in this scenario, they're now overweighted. Instead of being 2 billion of 10 billion, 20%, they're now 2 billion of 8 billion, 25%. And so the numerator, the value of their venture portfolio doesn't change that quickly. Company valuations will come down, but our mark to market is a little bit slower in the private markets. We wait for outside data, revenue shifts, or more most commonly external valuations, which for venture could be 12, 18, 24 month cycles before a company raises money again. So our valuation is going to stick at around 2 billion on their books. But their total portfolio is now eight. And so while venture hasn't performed poorly, the reaction that they end up having is saying, hey, uh, we're overweight adventure. We're not going to give any money to to VCs for a while. And VCs know this. And so the net result is VCs say, okay, well, it's going to be really hard to raise capital. Let's hold our breath. Let's, you know, instead of doing 10 deals this year, let's do 10 deals over the next two years, five deals a year. So we can be raising in a more favorable economic environment. When the LPs are going to be ready to give us cash again, Let and me, the result is there's a short there's a reduction in the amount of capital going into startups, affects valuations, affects hiring, affects everything.
1: I mean, that was that was super helpful. Um, I never excelled in economics, so thank you for that. Um, I, I mean, that's sincerely. Um, Uh, But in regards to just you know, company building, you know, I'm sure you've heard the theme of so many companies are usually built in, you know, downturns. And I'm a a big believer of that because constraints when you're building a business really helps you focus on, you know, what really um, like uh, the the core part of your business. Um, In terms of, you know, building companies compared to when it's easy to get capital, when it's not. You know, how much do you think that comes into play in terms of building like iconic companies? There
0: is a pattern. A lot of great companies have risen from the ashes of these markets. Probably a couple of factors. I think there is what you're saying, some discipline, you know, VCs as they're shifting their own investment frequency, they're also looking for different things. Uh, Six months ago, 12 months ago, we were looking for, you know, most VCs were looking for growth at all costs, almost irrationally. Uh, People have reverted back to fundamentals, which is where we always live at Interply. We we love looking for good unit economics, good fundamentals in the business. So it's more important to have a healthy, functional economic story, knowing your LTV CAC ratio makes sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, good margins all the way through than it is to grow at an insane clip, maybe an outsized clip in this market. So the first thing that shifts, I think, for entrepreneurs that we give advice to is Growth at all costs is no longer as critical as having a healthy business. That doesn't mean a profitable business because bottom line profitability is a choice to not reinvest money in growth. But there are moments where you'll find entrepreneurs out there with a negative gross margin. That's insane. You can never scale into profitability or a healthy company with a negative gross margin unless it eventually writes itself. So I would say business fundamentals are back on the table. In this market, uh, I would say to folks, don't panic, but understand there will be a flight to quality. Companies that don't have the same durability or strength aren't going to get a free pass right now. They're going to die. Um, That's hard. It's harsh. It's going to be painful for a lot of people, but there is a beautiful silver lining to it on a macro perspective. It's a process of society, humans, innovators, all the incredible people on on our teams reorganizing around visions and things that will actually impact society. So companies that aren't gonna make it anyway are now gonna die more quickly. Those teams are gonna be freed up to join the companies that have trajectory and momentum. Uh, and I hope that actually makes the companies that are gonna survive stronger. So um, I would say it's a game of managing your cash a little bit differently, right? Man- knowing that growth expectations aren't as high and that allows that there's alignment between what the companies are expected to do and what the VCs are looking for in the next round. Uh, and it's going to have some realities around the number of companies that get killed. Um, but the good news is, uh, the most important news is in my experience in 08, uh, which was a much more drastic uh, financial event than what we're experiencing now, the market kept moving. Companies that needed capital and were good and deserved capital continued to raise capital. Maybe their valuations weren't as high. Maybe there's a little bit more dilution but we're gonna see uh, good companies continue to get funded. Uh, and so at Interplay, we're actively investing. We, we are not changing actually our deployment strategy at all for this market. Uh, we think it's a good time to put in capital to work. There's gonna be great companies being built, as you said. Um, I think I'm sure there will be market changing companies that are founded in this kind of next couple of year window. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll say on that, just to kind of take it the last thread and bring it fully back to what you're asking. Why do we see great companies in these markets? probably a lot of factors. I think there's great companies built in every market, but one thing that's an interesting ingredient in these downturns is it really frees up talent. Executives who maybe would never had made the risk calculation to be entrepreneurs because they had big golden handcuff pay you know paydays coming. Well, their stock might be underwater. Companies might crash. People who have a job that they know there's no hope of a bonus might say, hey, the opportunity cost has never been lower for jumping in and starting that company. i would always been dreaming about starting. Now, not all those will hit, but a lot of great people who maybe didn't have the risk appetite for entrepreneurship, maybe aren't as insane as you and I are, where we do it kind of addictively, are going to come out and build wonderful organizations um, that we'll be talking about in five or 10 years as they go public.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I love just the the positive perspective because in a sense, you know, I agree with, you know, markets are cyclical. They go up and then they go down and they go up and they go down. And this will probably go on for it. Actually, it will go on forever. Um, but just that positive sort of perspective in terms of looking at, you know, the good parts of it rather than just focusing on the bad parts. I think it's so important, especially as an entrepreneur, you're going through so many things on a daily basis. If you're checking the stock market, you're checking stuff that really probably doesn't correlate to your business directly. Um, you know having that positive mindset and just staying focused on you know your core business and you know being a little bit more uh, thoughtful with you know how you're deploying your capital um i think all that in the end will definitely lead to you know like you said great companies and i love the the point you made in terms of i agree i think you know we will see a lot of entrepreneurs like finally taking the leap just because you know they had a great job, and now they don't. And now this is an opportunity for them to maybe chase this idea they've been ch- they've been thinking about for years, and they've never really had that push that they needed. And I've always kind of been under the belief that one of the biggest hindrance of um, just entrepreneurship for a lot of people um, is just fear of failure, because you know it it's hard, it's super 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 hard, and it's even harder when you have you know a really good job, it's a stable job. But when that gets taken away, you know, you don't really have too much to lose. It's kind of like somewhere like starting a company in college. You just do it because what do you have to lose? No downside, for, except yeah, So free there's, time. So I think, I think that's a really, really good way to look at it. Um, in terms of companies that, you know, really get you excited, aside from, you know, unit economics, I know you mentioned, um, you know, you're going to be launching a fund um, for different um, industry sectors. Um, just kind of a question I'm curious about, um, what, what part of the tech um, or startup ecosystem are you really bullish on right now? Like what would it be B2B SaaS, would it be blockchain? Maybe I'm asking you to pick a favorite again, but um, what's maybe one sector that, you know, you're, you're really kind of looking at? Um, so
0: we do B2B SaaS, B2B marketplaces, consumer technology. Um, I think those continue to be, and we, we're launching a blockchain fund. So I think all of those continue to be super exciting spaces. I think where you pick the favorites, if, if you're doing this right, is you look at kind of the, the cycle of innovation and innovation is really coming from pain points, right? And you can't experience every pain point with a finite amount of time in your life and a finite amount of, amount of experiences. We're all living on different journeys through this life. There's someone out working on a farm experiencing different technological gaps than what I'm experiencing in my office here in Soho, New York City. Right. And those experiences are really important because I can sit in an office all day and come up with spaces that I think are going to be areas where there's opportunities for disruption. And I do that. But the reality is, the real innovation, the real creativity is coming from people who are feeling a pain point in the area where I'm not touching. So we love uh kind of our method for looking for entrepreneurs is not to say hey we think you know the acquisition environment needs to be disrupted who's doing that very few vcs and i think very little of the real innovation cycle actually happens that way we try to find patterns so when someone walks in and says hey um there's a we need a better way to there's a better way to be smart on a farm, and we need a software solution that you don't know about. We're looking for patterns and heuristics in the way they're thinking about that business to see if that is a business that we think is going to be successful or not. And we let the entrepreneur teach us about that market, and then we go get smart on it in our diligence process. So one of the favorite things about the role is we're constantly learning. We're learning from entrepreneurs who know their industries way better than us. The idea that VCs know their industries better than the entrepreneurs is almost always ludicrous. There are exceptions, right? And uh, we're constantly learning from really sharp, smart people. And if you're not in the VC job as a student, I don't know how long you're going to last. So that's the mindset I think you have to have. Um, If it's okay, I want to add one thing to what you said before, a little bit of a tangent. You know, um, it it struck me. You were talking about people um, reading the news and panicking because of this market dynamic. I have a different approach for this. Um, I'm going to say something a little bit contrarian here and, uh, I think it will be helpful to a lot of
1: folks. Don't
0: read. Don't read. You know what?
1: Yeah, go go ahead. ahead. Uh, Do you want to hear kind of what I do? Yeah, tell me. I don't know if the stock market has been up or down for the past two weeks. I don't check. I don't own any crypto. Um, I don't have any risky investments, and my my philosophy is um, I like to build businesses so much that I like to clear out every sort of distraction or noise or something that would affect maybe my mood. Like you know, my stock portfolios down a little bit. Um, I'm near, I'm not nearly as successful as you, so looking at it probably wouldn't hurt as much. Um, sorry, that was a dad joke. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) But um, I I try to just remain laser focused on, you know, what I'm building. Um, Obviously, with what I'm building, there is some correlation, but I don't look at the broader markets. I look at our internal metrics first. And I look to see how we can improve those first before looking at, you know, what's going on in the stock market. And it is kind of inevitable um to not hear something if you're on twitter or just the internet in general you'll bump into some news article of it but i have no idea what's going on from a macro perspective i try to keep that focus super super narrow because you know you only have so much energy and so much time in the day and i am a firm believer that you know focus is just one of the most powerful things you can apply to a business um and it's, it's just always worked for me and it reduces stress levels and it just you know can focus on what you can control and then tune out all the noise and just execute it. and that's what i tell my team too is tune out the noise we have a clear plan goal we're confident in it let's go
0: i think that's so healthy i think um you know you're a successful serial entrepreneur despite your comment um and the reality is that frame of mind it's something I started doing, but I found validation through a book that was written that talked about this explicitly. And it was—it's the book is called *The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership*, and it's written by a former president of the University of Southern California, the USC. And there's different chapters on different things, but there's one chapter uh, that really landed with me. And the concept was: if you're sitting there reading about your competitors and pulling your hair out, and reading all the ups and downs of your stocks, pulling your hair out. How is it serving you how is it helping you advance the things you need to do in your business right and some of that data isn't relevant but the point that was made in the book which i liked a lot was that if you try to consume less and very tactically i i I do read headlines but very focused what happens is when there's other headlines out there that matter if you surround yourself by great people they'll tell you when you need to know something and they become your filter. So you get a little bit of the things that are putting you in the emotional tailspin around a political dynamic or something else that you have no control over. They take that out of your day, but when a competitor does do something relevant, which is very infrequently, almost always the competitors have little impact on your progress as an entrepreneur, right? It's usually distraction, paying attention to them. Uh, It will make its way to your desk. And so it's a little bit extreme to say, don't read. I obviously read, but I think I do a lot less than pe- other people who are trying to kind of stay abreast of every bit news item, every tweet. I do my quick scan, make sure I'm current on what's going on in the world, uh, but do not obsess over the flow of news.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, reflecting back you know, when I say don't read anything, you know, you still want to be somewhat informed. Like, OK, this yeah. is this is happening. It's it's going down. OK, right. Uh, just, but you'll uh, know that because
0: you'll talk to people, tell you about that, even if you didn't read it, which of course you will.
1: Yeah. But, my, but yeah, I totally agree with not every day, every hour, that sort of stuff that can just be unhealthy, um, especially if you're actively running a business. You're just kind of stressing yourself out and bringing, you know, like. I'm a firm believer that, you know, when you have, you know, a clear, positive mindset, you make better decisions. Um, you're, you're funner to be around. So you're a better leader to your team. Um, so that that's what's always kind of worked for me. And then also, I just um, have more fun um, while building. So, um, you know, I guess my next question is, um, you know, so you have all, you have so much going on. How do you manage all of this? That's kind of one thing I was yeah. trying to wrap my head around as you said all that. Um,
0: yeah, great question. So I've got an incredible team. This is a short answer. Uh, we have seven partners currently at Interplay and a lot of other people around, around the rim who are playing very important roles. I believe if you're managed with transparency, consistency, you delegate, but you hire really competent people and empower them. You can get a lot done. So I'm not working crazy hours doing what I'm doing. I don't like to, I'm not a four hour work week guy. I don't want to be. For me, 40, 50 hours a week is ideal. And I'm probably doing 50 to 60 right now. But I've got uh, people in the partnership. I try to think every partner could be someone who could take the firm over and run the whole thing. So they're all awesome, right? It's really easy to support them in the things they're working on when they're doing, you know, when they have such great capability, a lot of them have been CEOs before, so it's just the caliber of the folks. that makes it really easy to um, scale.
1: Nice, I like that. Yeah, that's pretty much the, the cure to everything. Is you know, if you get if you get the team right, everything else kind of solves itself. Um, and I've had some uh, sort of debates around this. Like, you can give a bad idea to a great team, and they'll figure it out. And, Obviously, a bad idea is a bad idea, but a great team evolves it and do a good idea and eventually into a great idea. But if you give a great idea to a bad team, it's going to be really hard to capitalize on that opportunity. So I'm 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 definitely in the boat of team and culture um, and giving your team autonomy and encouragement to lead. Um, not only makes your job as the head of you know this. Um, this firm, but the same for entrepreneurs as well, that are leading companies. You gotta, you gotta build a team, set the culture, set the pace, um, and let, and, let, and trust your team. You can encourage them, support them.
0: Right, but that, that balance is kind of a catch-22. It's a little bit of a trick. you know. I, I deal with a lot of CEOs who have trouble delegating. And it's a big thing, being able to delegate. It sounds like you do it really well. Um, but the the thing is, delegation only works if the team's competent, right? And you have, to have a, you have to have both. You have to have a team that's competent and a leader who's willing to let go to scale. You can't have one or the other. You have to have both. And coming back to what you were saying before about ideas and teams, I think you have to have a good idea and good team.
1: Yeah, the, the, the way I learned that, though, was uh, the hard way. For my first business, I had a really hard time um, letting go. I was young. Um, you know, I, a specific example was we were hiring a VP of marketing at the time. And I was like three years out of college and the going rate, this was like 2013, let's say, um, and salary 150 to 200 or something like that. And I was like, there's, I'm not paying that. Like, cause I was making like 30 grand the few years before. I, and obviously in hindsight, that was a huge mistake. Um, but you know, sometimes you just gotta, you know, you learn the most through your mistakes. Um, and that's what I personally have really enjoyed about um, building micro Every mistake, like it's really hard to forget a big mistake. You know, it's just kind of, at least for me, you know, it's yeah. okay to make mistakes, but I don't think it's okay to make them twice. It's, it's always okay to make mistakes. But um, for me personally, my goal is to never, is to learn from mistakes. Um, and that's, I think, um, where I really, you know, towards the tail end of, of business apps specifically, I really started learning like the importance of building a bench, having a you know, real team to help you. Um, so it looks like you're, you're light years ahead of me if um, you're managing 500 people and you're barely, yeah, go ahead. Well,
0: well, I've got CEOs on each company, like they're doing it, but yeah, we're, it's just about good people in the middle. Do you, um... there was an article I read a long time ago that was making a comment that uh, the people who are most successful tend to have an internal feedback loop they make mistakes, they kind of beat themselves up, dissect what happened and learn. Do you find you're having like an internal coaching conversation after you screw something up?
1: Um, trying to think about a recent mistake. Uh, nothing, I, I do, I wake up early, so I'll just go through like my routine with you. Maybe we can pull something out of here. I kind of live on your time zone. I go to bed at like eight, nine Uh, and then I wake up like four or five. So I have a lot of time to look at my calendar, look at my day, reflect on the past day, Um, especially on the weekends, I'll do a calendar audit. Um, I'm a big um, advocate of trying to work in your zone of genius as much as possible, just because, you know, to go the distance, like you, you have to build the business around a life that you can endure for a decade. Otherwise, you're just going to burn out, or you're going to build a job and company that you hate working at. Um, so I, you know, ruthlessly tried to, um, you know, just do do fun podcasts like this. Um, you know, figure out ways to, you know, hand off more to of my team and empower them. Because also, like, you know, delegation is hard, but at the same time, you you build a better company because when people join companies, they want to grow too. So it helps everybody. It helps you as the founder. And then you delegate to someone. And now they feel empowered. So now they're probably going to, if you do your job right, and you're not, you know, a, a rude person or something like that, you're helping them grow professionally in their career. Their tenure is going to be longer. Um, so in terms of a, an internal feedback loop, um, I, don't, I don't have a formal one. I've done some uh, anonymous uh, 360 reviews with my whole team. Like where you just give me your honest feedback on how I'm doing. Cause that's, I think that's, um, really important for me is just, let me know, my blind spots, like where where am I weak? Where am I strong? Um, I can tell you where I'm weak. If you're, if you're curious.
0: Um, yeah. Tell me what are your blind spots? Uh,
1: I'm a, I'm a, I'm a ready and fire type guy. Um, so literally good idea is going out today. And then my team will kind of hold me by the shirt, like, Whoa, wait, 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 wait
0: classic
1: entrepreneur. Um, love it. Yeah. And then also just like on the weekends, I'll have like the best ideas and I'll have them like pre-scheduled to send like at a certain time on Monday. Um, I'm kind of that type of person. I just, I love startups so much where, you know, and I love, um, moving, I love momentum. I love, um, you know, I talk about speed of execution, um, a lot cause I believe that to be, um, the biggest, if not, um, you know, the main driver of, um, or the, the biggest advantage, uh, startups have. So, um, that's my biggest weakness. And then, uh, my biggest strength, um, from my team would be, uh, culture building, just creating a fun, uh, environment that people trust and feel safe in. Um, and I can forward you the email if you don't believe me, but my, I also have I a, yeah, I have a CEO coach that ran it for me and it it was really enlightening. I recommend a lot of entrepreneurs do the same because you'll hear good feedback and that could be your feedback loop, you know, like, Hey, you did this, this one time. And, you know, sometimes it could sting, but, you know, I've always found that a players, um, let's go here. This is just kind of a random tangent, but you know, the quote, like hire great people and leave them alone. Um, I don't personally subscribe to that um at all i've always found that a players want to know they want to know what they're doing wrong more than anything they want constructive feedback they want to know how to get better they want to know where they stand with you they do not want to be left alone um so when i get my feedback um i want to know where i suck i want to know what i'm doing wrong um and it's nothing personal it's just stuff that i need to work on um what's your your thoughts on that
0: i agree on it i think there's a big difference between delegation and abdication. I think abdication isn't the way to build a high functioning organization. I think you need to give people the space to not only do, but to think and to guide, but you do need to provide them with your input and bumper rails and support along the way. And then it goes both ways, right? I kind of view my job as, Uh, one where I support my partners, I support the entrepreneurs we invest in. I kind of view myself as a person whose job is to help everyone else be successful in their jobs. And if everyone kind of goes up that chain, eventually we've got a really high functioning organization. But the, um, the, the, the way I can get better the same as you is I ask for a lot of feedback from everyone I work with. I don't care what title there is they have or where they are in the organization. Um, I feel like everyone's teaching everybody something. And when you stop paying attention, you stop learning. And that's when you kind of start to get timed out in this game. Um, I love, I love when people on my team tell you, tell me, Hey, I sucked at that. Hey Mark, you know, like you really screw that up. Like let's change this, this and that some people are more confident doing it than others. And I, know there's a power dynamic when someone's at the top of the organization, but I'm grateful for it. Uh, so I, I think not everyone is, but I think it's an important part of kind of being in this long-term and getting better.
1: So no you're maybe I, I want to come work for you now, Mark. Uh, likewise. <laughs> um, I, I got a, a couple more questions, um, but what's, what's maybe, um, this is just a total question on top of my head. What's kind of a quote that um, like a similar sort of maybe common view that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that maybe you might disagree with. I know that's a hard one. So I'll give you. Mm.
0: <laughs> I like you. I have many weaknesses. Mine is my worst of all my things is my memory and recall. So I write everything down. Um, I think uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a layup. I'll actually take the thing you said before. Uh, I think there is an, an ongoing debate, and it's probably frivolous to have it, about whether it's the idea or the team. And everyone will say, one of the phrases is like, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's all about execution. Well, I agree with the execution part. But there are a lot of really smart, competent exec- operators executing against really stupid ideas. And they're running into a brick wall. And the team thing holds, presuming that the team will figure out a bad idea, an idea is bad, and innovate and get to a good one. But I do believe ideas have a lot of value. Uh, and so when I'm looking at companies to start and everything else, I think you got to have it all. You gotta have everything. And that's why there's such a low success rate in startups. It's cause it's not, you can't will it to be with one dimension of what makes a company great. Right? You will it to be, you have a shot of willing it to be when you have every dimension lined up. So otherwise it would be a lot easier.
1: What do you think? Um, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I think it comes in in, in interesting cases and just from uh, pulling up my past um, business apps, um, I didn't have any experience at all. Like I literally had no sales experience, marketing experience, but, um, it worked out because, um, this is my next question. Um, what would you say the most important factor is in terms of a startup succeeding? And there's actually a scientific, um, like research that's been done around this. Um, so I'd love it get your take and I'll share. You yeah. All. I'm sure
0: someone has a better answer. Um, I'll answer a couple of ways, and these would be my guts. I, I think you need all of the ingredients of um, real idea, something's business model, everything else, you know market, you need all of that. Uh, the team is the number one thing that you can kind of that's, that's the fixed item typically, that you don't want to be readjusting early on. Within a team, the characteristics that I think make people really successful as entrepreneurs, all three things that you have in spades and why you were probably successful despite having no experience in college. It's humility, organizational skills, and work ethic, grit. And if you have those three things, you'll keep pedaling, and people will tell you to turn left and right, and you'll learn, and you'll figure it out. Any of those three can be a major weak link in the game. The one I'll add to this question, which is probably not in the study or commonly request or asked about or talked about, is I also think in our venture-backed world, how you finance your company is a big determinant of how much money the entrepreneur actually makes. Now, that may not be the definition of success. It might be how big the company is. But a lot of entrepreneurs are out there trying to raise venture capital when they have businesses that should not raise venture capital. And I do think there is a framework for how to look at this. It's actually, I feel like it's my greatest thought piece contribution to the ecosystem. It's like the first chapter in my book. Um, and there's a business school or two that teaches it now, but I read a little two by two read it. that gets into this. Wow, you read it? I'm sorry.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, no, it was great, and I agree with you. Yeah, I think, you know, um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs tend to kind of focus on, you know, raise capital, get in these magazines, raise a bunch of people or hire a bunch of people, blow their companies up, um, negative unit um, economics. Um, and they're not really building a business; they're really just in the, kind of the business of raising venture capital. Um, and I think that can be uh, um, uh, lead to a, lead to some you know bad outcomes. Um, so I, I I agree with you there completely. Um, but I'm going to go back to the first piece. Um, What's the answer in, in terms of what it is? Uh, yeah. So there's a really good TED talk, and it goes over analysis of all these different companies that succeeded and failed all the same business model all well funded stellar teams uh and it was market timing so mm. bringing back my um original example um you know i would like to think i worked really hard but it was also kind of right place right time iphone just came out I was, you know so that's where you can kind of say like market timing with the with a great idea, with a, you know, media, you know, obviously a great team will take it way farther, but um, market time, like the best example would probably be um, like YouTube didn't take off until, um, you know, flash allowed for, um, you know, smaller video sizes, but there's multiple attempts for that. There's a number of different businesses. I think you could probably go through your entire portfolio and like yeah, at there's Facebook
0: before Facebook that ate it. Yeah. Because the bandwidth wasn't there. I have some friends who were some of those founders.
1: Yeah. Are you talking about Friendster?
0: Uh, even before, yeah, there's a. Um, I I read
1: like, this I read this great post on Friendster. Um, the number one reason that they failed, um, and and I and look this up um if you're listening, but they had amassed so much technical debt, and the founders were kind of seduced into the like they were just basically at every event talking about their business, and they weren't really looking at, um, you know, they weren't really focused on the business per se. And this was a core post, uh, I believe, from someone uh, deep in the company, but really fascinating post in terms of, um, you know, their 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 timing was a little early, and that um, uh, you know, building things as you know, ten years ago, it is way it was way harder than it is today. And I think um, technical debt slowed it down, Friendster down to a point where it was almost unusable and everybody moves to MySpace and then everybody moves to Facebook. It's a total tangent, but.
0: That's okay. But I, I, I want to come back to the main point. I'm going to make an academic argument. So it's, it's, it's not worth too much discussion, probably. Don't look at me. But, but <laughs> fair. <laughs> uh, but no, look, um, market timing, isn't that part of the idea? it's not just what you're building, it's when you're building it, how it fits into the ecosystem, whether the technology can support it, right? Isn't that part, like isn't micro require happening at the right time?
1: Yeah, so one thing I've always, um, like if I ever get a quote, this is the quote I want. Um, Here we go. As an entrepreneur, you should make a non-obvious bet to everybody else that's obvious to you that will become obvious over time. So what you're doing, and this was part of my require, I thought, you know, there's going to be a lot more businesses um, being created, just startups are being democratized, um, you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition seems to be a trend that's rising. Started reading about a lot of people building, you know, hundred million, billion dollar plus portfolios of companies that weren't Google, Apple, Facebook, the typical people or companies you think of acquiring, and I said this is going to be a thing, you know, people are, instead of just starting businesses, you can buy one. And then people are creating more online businesses than ever. Um, and they're going to need a place to sell them. So that was obvious to me. Um, obviously you can, you can always get it wrong, but you're making a bet. I made that bet. And sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong, but. Um,
0: right. But part of the idea there was the timing. I mean, if you had tried to start this company in 2001, when the market's falling apart, there's not cl- tons of internet adoption, you know. People are worried about privacy at a different level, right? They're not going to share company information. No shot. No yeah. shot. Yeah. Right. So you're 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 writing a, a macro wave. So I I think I think the idea is this is not the common viewpoint in the startup community, but I think ideas are super valuable and super important. Um. And I think they can really unlock the potential of a great operator.
1: I agree with that. Well, Mark, I know we're getting uh, to the end of our time here. Um, anything else you wanted to add to this conversation? This has been super fun, just off the cuff. Always love chatting with you. Um, no. any-
0: um, I love to be in here. I appreciate it for anyone listening. Uh, if you're not using MicroAcquire yet, you should be telling all of your friends about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you got to plug yourself, man. So Mark, no, no. Um, for, for you sell me, I'll sell you. For, for everybody listening, um, if they want to learn more about Interplay or yourself, um, where, where can they find you? Okay, uh,
0: interplay.vc, you can find pretty much everything. Um, my podcast is there, uh, which I've been grateful to have Andrew on. Um, we've got um, in- information about the incubator. The entire program is completely transparent on the website. Our Foundry, if you want to run a company, don't have an idea, don't know what to do, but think you got the chops, please apply. Um, if you're looking to raise capital for your company, that's the front door, reach out to us. There's, you can literally click through the website and it will get to us uh, and we will review it. Um, but that's, that's kind of the inbound hub. And if you're looking for a job, you want to join a portfolio company or you like what we're doing at in Interplay, everything we've hubbed through interplay.vc so you can kind of access all of it it's very open um it's very accessible
1: right on mark you're awesome thanks you so much for joining me on this podcast and um congrats on all your success man uh it truly is inspiring um and it comes from such an authentic place so I appreciate break, man. appreciate you saying that all right man cheers thank you
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the SaaS Acquisition Stories podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, make sure to like and follow on your preferred channel. And if you know a friend or colleague that would benefit from hearing this conversation, please share it with them. For more information on MicroAcquire and how we can help you start conversations that lead to an acquisition in just 30 days, check us out at microacquire.com. We'll see you next time.